You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 21st, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Well, howdy. How is everyone this glorious evening? Super. Super. Pretty good. Why, why do you ask? So I understand on Friday night, which is two nights from the time we're recording this, but the day before the show goes up, there's supposed to be a massive meteor shower in North America. Really? Well, everyone, it's where we'll have a good viewing in the in the United States. Now, wait which a minute, one? It's, it's a new a, one. It's a new it's one. It's not annual. Yeah, this is a new one. It's a new one, yeah. How, what are they talking about? How, how, you know. Up to 400 per hour. Wow. Holy okay. crap. Now, are wait, you we're not shitting me? No. This isn't some deep impact That's, kind of scenario because that wouldn't be cool. Which, which comet is it from? Oh, the, the parent comet for the shower is 209P linear. It's going to need a better name than that. Yeah, it's discovered in 2004. Oh, that's awesome. They also said that the particle sizes are larger than typical, so we might get even better, re- really bright meteors. Mm. Meteors, yeah. So cool. hopefully, as as hopefully it won't be overcast. Clouds. Yeah, yeah. It's supposed to rain all day tomorrow. It's. I think it's supposed when, to rain all day Friday too. Here, when's the peak? I won't. I wouldn't be surprised. That's your luck, Bob. So well, yeah. So next week we'll let you know how that went. Of course, if you're hearing this on the show, it's too late. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know about this last yeah. week when we should have talked about it. <laughs> well, you know, that's okay because at least those of you who are listening to the show on the day it comes out still have time to celebrate the birthday of Inez Mexia, an awesome Mexican-American botanist who trekked through Central and South America in her 50s to collect uh, novel plant specimens. She was pretty amazing. And in fact, when she was 59, she started a two and a half year expedition in Peru and Brazil. And at one point for three months, she and her team were trapped by floods in a 600 meter deep gorge. And they only escaped by building a raft and then riding the rapids on the river out of there. That's like an after-school special. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's Three months? How awesome is that? Yeah, three Three months. Three months, Rebecca? Were there dinosaurs there? Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Marshall, Will, and Holly. I mean, you know, the the science community has pretended they've buried that, so to speak. But yeah, there were probably dinosaurs there. Yeah, she was she was pretty awesome. And so some of her specimens are at uh Harvard University and the Field Museum in Chicago. Uh she was like a larger than life personality apparently, and she was the busiest, certainly the most accomplished uh female botanist of her time. Yeah, I mean, you got to give it to anybody who begins a scientific career at 55. That's yeah. cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Now, I, I have read elsewhere that at this time, you know, in the 1800s and even into the first half of the 20th century, that this was one of the acceptable scientific careers for women, meaning basically descriptive, collecting stuff, describing, especially plants, like going out and yeah. collecting plants. Yeah, that's the kind of thing a woman was allowed to do that it was yeah. acceptable. So, which is kind of sad, you know, it's, I mean, it's great that women who had the inclination to do something scientific did stuff, but it was, it's of course sad that they were sort of 
herded into this very few what was considered to be like not really any cerebral work, just descriptive work, you know? Yeah. Although, you know, the thing you got to give her even more props for is working within that, you know, constricting sort of uh, expectation of women. She went out and did things that you wouldn't expect a a 59 year old man to be out there doing, you know? Oh yeah. She made the most of it. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But yeah, you're, you're right. And that's what we see, you know, You'll see this come up again and again and again when I talk about women in history uh, who contribute to the sciences and to skepticism. By and large, yeah, they tend to be in these fields that are considered, you know, safe for women, yeah. even when they're women who were blazing trails and being, you know, the first women into certain schools and things like that. Like another woman who was born today, May 24th. Uh, in 1898, Helen Talsig, who was an American cardiologist, and she founded the field of pediatric cardiology. So again, you mm. have, uh, you know, a broader field that is pretty, it was, you know, very difficult for women to get into when it comes to actually being a doctor. Um, but a lot of the women I talk about here are focused on uh, helping other women and children and usually marginalized people because those were the areas where women were actually able to make some elbow room. So Talsig, yeah, was uh, crucial in figuring out a procedure that would help kids born with what's called blue baby syndrome. Are you familiar with that, Steve? Yeah, yeah. I remember all oh, of yeah. this from medical school. That this that yeah. the tetralogy of Fallot is the technical yeah. name. Yeah. It's always a cool name. I always remember that the Tetralogy of Fallot. It is um, a cool name. <laughs> and I re- I remember her name, you know, the Blaylock Tossic Shunt. You know, yeah. Right? Blaylock yeah. was one of her colleagues at Johns Hopkins. And so yeah, the the Shunt is named after her and him. She she's she's pretty amazing. She helped avert the uh the linamide birth defect. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Bob in the United States. She testified yeah. to the FDA. She suffered from dyslexia, and all, and she she lost her hearing before she graduated from Hopkins. She lost her hearing. She had to rely on lip reading and hearing aids. And wow. it's it's interesting that some people think that a lot of her advances in cardiology was because of her ability to to uh, determine the differences between the rhythms, you know, of normal and damaged hearts. Uh, you know, just not from sound, but just from touching the heart. So that's wow. interesting how that deficit could come in handy. But uh, she's—I think she's a little annoying though, because uh, I don't know. It, I read that she founded pedantic cardiology, and I, why does she have to be so annoying about that field? <laughs> what, I don't get. We do it. hate pedants here. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait. Oh whoa, it was pediatric. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Never mind. Never mind. <laughs> yes, Steve. Yes. All right, Bob. You're going to tell us about planet-eating stars. Now, yeah. of course, that's an ambiguous right. phrase. <laughs> Is it about a it's planet, a planet eating, eating stars? stars. Yeah. yeah, it's like, that's like the, <laughs> right. There's like that from that. It's like that old carny <laughs> trick: a man-eating chicken. And, <laughs> the, the, the panda eats, shoots, and leaves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of the reasons I found this interesting is not just because stars can eat planets, but uh, that we have yet another tool for determining, you know, which solar systems have potential, potentially habitable Earth-sized planets, which is also a worthwhile advance. Now, I'm referring specifically to a recent study that showed that stars can eat um, their inner rocky planets, enough of them, so that it actually alters their chemical composition in a way that we can detect. And that, that's one of the things I found fascinating, that a gargantuan star can eat enough of this material that we could actually know about it, even if, we, even if it happened, you know, a million years ago. 
Now, that study was conducted by scientists at Vanderbilt University, and it's in uh, the May 7th uh, issue of Astrophysical Journal. Uh, the, the two researchers looked at two stars with boring names that I won't even say in a binary star system. Uh, now, these were G-class dwarf stars like our sun, um, and each one had their own kind of retinue of uh, gas giant planets with them. I, I think one star had just one like Neptune-sized, pl- ha- Neptune-sized planet. So the fact that they were binary, though, is important because this means that the stars are most likely twins, born in the same stellar nursery, and that in turn means that their chemical signatures, the differences would be very similar. So that in turn means that their chemical signatures would be very similar unless there was some sort of outside influence like perhaps one or more or, or both stars, one or both stars cannibalizing its own surroundings. So that would be important if there is a difference between them. So they looked at each star spectroscopically, meaning that they produced uh, a, an image of the components of light and the star emits. Now, I recommend looking up this article just to see that image. The, the image is, is absolutely beautiful. And the image has these dark, these little dark gaps in it, though, and, and they represent elements in the star that absorb specific frequencies of light. That's how it works. So this means that astronomers can identify elements that exist in the star, uh, besides the obvious hydrogen or helium, pretty much any other element, even if those elements are, are just minuscule in terms of uh, the ratio, which of course they would be. So when they did this, they found signatures for elements like, for example, s- silicon, iron, calcium, and aluminium, as our Australian friends would pronounce it. Those elements, those elements could have come from a supernova, right? That enriched the cloud of hydrogen that later became these stars. That's what, that's one of the great things about supernovas. But in this case, though, we've got two interesting facts. Each star had uh, different amounts of those elements, which, like I said, that's weird because they should be more twin-like. They shouldn't be different uh, by that much. And also, um, those specific elements are just what you would expect uh, to be abundant in rocky planets. So that those, those are key bits of evidence when they looked at the uh, when they did the spectroscopy. So their conclusion then is that each star may have consumed some or all of their inner rocky planets, at least enough of them to make some sort of measurable difference. In fact, the scientists think that one of these stars consumed the equivalent of ten Earth-sized planets, uh, and the other ate twenty of them. So they were they were very voracious. I have to say, though, I seriously think that they they need to rename those stars Galactus One and Galactus Two. They just, I you that. know, right? Come on, astronomers! Mm-hmm. You know, we've got fundamental particles named charm and strain. Would it kill you if you just were a little goofy with some of this stuff? So the next question then is, how do these planets get sucked in? You know, you think that after a relatively brief amount of time, they would be in a stable orbit. They're not just going to drop in. You know, gravity doesn't work that way. They need some sort of push. And uh, so they think that the outer gas giants um, that each of these stars have migrated towards the inner system. And we've seen this many times, right, with the so-called hot Jupiters. They're Jupiter-sized and they're bizarrely close to their parent stars, closer than, than even Mercury. So it's pretty amazing when they were discovered. So what could happen then is that on their journey, the, gra- the gas giants gravitationally perturbed the inner system, throwing them into the sun. So that's, that's the theory, and that makes, that makes perfect sense. The percentage of stars that have hot Jupiters ranges from about 0.3 to 1.2%, depending on the data set you're looking at. So that's not that many. I do not think that that information is robust enough to come to that conclusion. We don't well, that, know. We don't know enough now what percentage of, of stars out there have hot Jupiter. So that I think that's that's one of the open questions that they need to resolve. But that's right an, now it looks like – right, you're right. Okay. But right now it looks like it's around 1%. It's not, not a lot. The other point is that there have been – there's evidence in, in, I think, simulations that show that even if a hot Jupiter migrates to the inner solar system, there could still be 
Earth-like planets in the habitable, habitable zone, essentially forming in the wake of the of the hot Jupiter as it migrates in. Exactly, and that's actually one of my problems with this entire thing is that some of the scientists like uh, Trey Mack, uh, who's who was involved in this, he said that we will. He said, you know, regarding if we find a star like this, he said that we will be able to conclude that their planetary systems most likely lack inner rocky planets. And I disagree with that. I don't. I don't think you can conclude that because we don't know yet. And and that and that kind of ties into what uh, his fellow researcher Kivan Stasun said. He said that this work reveals that the question of whether and how stars form planets is actually the wrong thing to ask. The real question seems to be how many of the planets that a star makes avoid the fate of being eaten by their parent star. And that ties into what you're saying. So yeah. that's, we can't automatically conclude, oh, this, this star's got a weird concentration of these elements. Oh, there must be no more planets left on in, uh, any more rocky planets. And I disagree because we don't know enough yeah. yet to say that. I, to me, that would actually be a good sign. To me, that means, oh, wow, you know, this solar system has a planetary disk. You know, maybe there's other ones there. So I wouldn't automatically be, be pessimistic. By, by finding a star like that, I think it, yeah. you know, I think we can, can we can look into it more. But yeah, we need to know how often does this happen, and how what kind of effect does it have on all the inner planets? You know, the, if there's one left, that's all we really need to know. Or may, you know, maybe more often than not, it just d- disrupts the entire inner solar system, and it's just not even worth looking for them. Who knows? And, no, what else is interesting to think about because it seems that w- when solar systems initially formed, there were lots of planets. You know, mm-hmm. and and maybe maybe it's not uncommon for stars to eat some of those planets before the things settle down. You know, into just planets with stable orbits. But from what I understand, most like the majority of the planets that form initially actually get chucked out of the system, or right, or into the star. I would guess that that'd be an, yeah, an that's interesting conclusion as well. That's why there are so yeah. many rogue planets out there because most of the you know stars are kicking out a whole bunch of planets before things settle down. Right. Yep. So and don't don't forget one of my predictions this year is that we'll discover a rogue moon orbiting a rogue planet. <laughs> Just a reminder. Okay, all right. <laughs> I I forgot about that. Just a reminder one of my predictions was that Oreo <laughs> would come out with a bold new taste and it's already happened, watermelon. Thank you. Go on. <laughs> Nothing to do with this story, but okay. <laughs> How could that be good? I mean, watermelon with a cookie? I didn't say <laughs> good. Go. I didn't say good. I just said, said bold. bold. <laughs> I am Galactus Eater of Oreos. <laughs> so, guys, there's been a new study looking at uh, fluoridation. You know, we're going to be interviewing a couple of dentists later on in the show. Yep. Uh, uh-huh. But uh, this so looking at fluoridation programs in New Zealand and IQ. Uh, if you recall, about a year ago, I think at this point in time, we talked about the Harvard study that was going around the the anti fluoridation. People were, were shopping this. Uh, this it actually wasn't a new study. It was a review of studies claiming that fluoride exposure correlates with a reduced IQ. And I pointed out that in this, in the studies that they were reviewing, they weren't reviewing fluoridation programs. They were reviewing environmental exposure to fluoride at much higher levels. And in fact, the low exposure group had the same level of fluoride exposure as is allowed for in fluoridation programs and that the high exposure group had much higher levels of fluoride. So you, you can't conclude, and even the authors of the review acknowledge, you can't conclude from that anything about the safety or the effects of fluoride in public fluoridation of public water supplies. But now we have a study that actually does address 
the the actual question. So this was this is an observational study, as as obviously you know it, as it must be. They had a unique opportunity here because um, in this region of New Zealand there were areas that had fluoride levels in the water and areas that didn't. You have essentially communities in close proximity proximity to each other. So a, a lot of the other variables that might affect oral health were all the same. And the only real variable that was different was whether or not that they were putting fluoride in the public water supply. The other thing that's remarkable about this study is a prospective study, which means they followed people forward in time. Guess how long does the study last? 50 years. 20 years. Two days. 38 years. Damn. Is that all? 38-year follow-up. That's impressive. Yes. And they measured IQ, which was, you know, the, the claim of the other study was that fluoride reduced IQ. Imagine and the scientist, you know, wife comes out, honey, don't forget to follow up with those nice people. <laughs> and the, and the follow up rate was over 95%. That's the other thing. I mean, they, it wasn't a huge dropout either. Yeah, that's incredible. I guess people don't move around people, too much in New Zealand. Yeah, <laughs> I suppose not. <laughs> so they compared Fluoridation versus no fluoridation. They actually measured fluoride exposure through through brushing. Other, you know, so they, they were pretty good about measuring flor- total fluoride exposure, not just the fluoridation in the water. And they found absolutely no effect on IQ, none whatsoever. No it, there was, if anything, there was a trend towards slightly higher IQ in the fluoride group, but it wasn't it wasn't statistically significant. So we'll just say there was no effect. So that there you go. I mean, a large study, very well controlled. Great follow-up, you know, 38 years, prospective study, zero effect of IQ on putting fluoride in the water. So that is as, pre- as good as it gets for an observational study. You know what I mean? Yeah. This should really put the nail in the coffin in terms of the concerns about public fluoridation programs having a negative effect on neurological development or IQ specifically. Um, this is pretty negative evidence. Will they come up with some other boogeyman? Of course. I mean, you know, if you're a dedicated, you know, anti-fluoride anti- ideologue. An- anti-fluoridian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anti-fluoridationist. Uh, then, uh, yeah, I mean, evidence. Oh. You could, you could, no, people have no problem shrugging off evidence. For example, another uh, study I wanted to mention very quickly was that uh, a, a new study looking at – this is a review. This one was not a new, no, new data, but just a, a, it was a meta-analysis of – uh, all of these studies looking at uh, the MMR vaccine, thimerosal, and autism. The authors say this is the first time that, that anyone has ever done a, a meta-analysis looking at this data, looking at the data of you know, the MMR vaccine, mercury, thimerosal, and autism, and they found absolutely no correlation whatsoever. Hey, what do you know? Hey, yeah, what do you know? Which, of course, is not surprising because, you know, if you if you know the research, you know the research doesn't show it. This is just a meta-analysis. This is like the cherry on the top. You know, it's not – it would have been very surprising if it showed something different than what all the studies Yeah, let, yeah. let's compare the two stacks of evidence, yeah. right? All the quality research is pointing in the same direction with both of these issues. The anti-fluoridationists, just like the anti-vaccinationists, don't really have any good evidence to point to. Uh, so they just dismiss the evidence that they don't like. All right, Evan, you're going to tell us about nasal strips – for racing horses. Yeah, have we ever talked about horse racing I don't think so, before no. on the show? Not this that I can first. recall. The three races which comprise the Triple Crown are the Kentucky Derby, the Preakness, and the Belmont Stakes. And only three-year-old 
Only three-year-old horses can compete, so that any one horse can ever have one attempt at the crown. That's it. Uh, winning all three of these thoroughbred horse races is considered the greatest accomplishment of a thoroughbred racehorse, and some consider it one of the most difficult feats to achieve in all of sports. It has only happened 11 times in 131 years. And the last time the horse won was Secretariat in 1978. So we've gone a long time without one. Now it sets the ta- that sets the table for this week's skeptical news item on horse racing and the nasal strips. And the horse's name is California Chrome. And perhaps you've yeah. heard this name oh, yeah. mentioned in the news lately. And the reason why the horse is in the news is California Chrome has won the Kentucky Derby and has won the Preakness. And all that's left is the Belmont Stakes coming up. If the horse wins, it will be coronated with the Triple Crown, and that's coming up on June 7th. But Houston, or rather Elmont, New York, we have a problem. The Belmont Stakes is run in the town of Elmont, New York, which is out on Long Island, and the Belmont Stakes is organized by the New York Racing Association. They hold the exclusive rights to conduct racing at the track and in Belmont, and the State Gaming Commission regulates the events. Well, they, like any other organization and regulatory agencies, have rules, and their rules say... Horses in thoroughbred racing in New York cannot wear nasal strips. Oh, that right? is a rule. So, yes, that's wow. a rule in New York, in New York only. And these nasal strips, you know, we've talked about these before, and we've seen our some of our favorite athletes, a lot of pro football players wear these things, these band-aid, Band-Aid-type bandages that uh, they put over their noses, and we've seen it for some time. Uh, they're under The athletes are under the impression that wearing these bandages across the bridge of the nose will enhance their athletic performance in some regard, or at least uh, make it a little easier for them to breathe. And the owners and trainers of California Chrome have publicly stated that they will not allow their horse to race without the nasal strip. And if that means not running in the Belmont Stakes, then so be it. What? So That's insane. Exactly. So they, that makes insane. no sense they at all. Outrage. They outrage. feel that their horse will definitely lose if they don't use the nasal strips. That's exactly it's correct. And do you know why, that. Jay? Because they started only using these nasal strips on California Chrome in its last six races. And lo and behold, the horse has won all six of those races. So, so it has to be the nasal strip. Why right? not try? Like, does it cost a lot of money to run the horse in it or something? Like, why not oh, just it does. do it, you know, and try? Yeah, it was. A, they were playing no. chicken. It was a stunt. Yeah, there right. was it no was way they weren't going to race. That's it what was- it's got to be. That's what it's got to be. So, yeah. what happened, Ed? Well, the New York Racing Association and New York State Gaming Commission have caved and they lifted the ban ah. on nasal strips. It worked. So it worked. the horse to compete in the Triple Crown. But here's the problem, guys. Okay. So the media and the sports world and everyone, it was in, you know, headlines everywhere. No one or practically no one asked the question, what do the nasal strips actually do for the horse? Do they really assist the horse? And if that's athletic performance, is there any studies or evidence backing anything up? Well, fortunately, and Steve, uh, you uh, came up with this article, uh, Jeff Blay, president of the American Association of Equine Practitioners, one of the most respected horse racing vets in the country, has said that these strips do not enhance the horse's performance. What he said is they open up the nasal passages and help the horse breathe like they do for NFL linebackers who wear them. But he's had horses that have run with them on and horses have run without them, and he has not seen an enhancement. He's, in other words, the evidence is that there's no advantage that yields better results for the horses wearing the strip. Right? Sounds mm-hmm. anecdotal, though. I mean, did he do a blinded test or any? Is it just well, anecdotal? The, yeah, but Bob, if you blind the horse, yeah. you can't run the race. Yeah, right. 
uh, referring to some studies that have been done. And what I did is I, I took a look at one of the manufacturers of these nose strips for horses. I took a look at one of their websites, or the most popular one out there, and at least the one that uh, apparently California Chrome is going to be wearing. And that company refers to some studies um, in which they uh, say there is evidence for the efficacy of the strips. But there's a problem. The references they give have primarily to do with measuring the differences in something called exercise-induced pulmonary hemorrhage or EIPH fluids. It's known as bleeding or bleeding attack. And it refers to the presence of blood in the airways of the lung in association with exercise in the horse. And about 60% of thoroughbreds experience this EIPH. Of those 60%, about 5% of them show bleeding through the nostrils after exercise, which is known as epistaxis. And the medical treatment to help stop the bleeding through the horse's nose is a drug called Furosemide, which is also known by the um, brand name Lasix, which is a diuretic. And the studies they cite are relatively small studies, you know, six horses here, eight horses there, and so forth. And there's about a handful of them. And they show some sort of net positive effect in helping with these EIPH levels. But the question then is, do EIPH levels correlate to enhanced performance? And that part is very unclear because there are studies that say it does. There are studies that say there's uh, no effect. And there's studies that say actually in raised EIPH levels helps a horse's performance. So it's inconclusive at best. And that's about the best evidence that at least the manufacturers are putting out there saying that there's something to these uh, nasal strips. Yeah, the, the, the research is very complicated. I was looking through the research just in people. You know, does na- mm-hmm. Do nasal strips work? And I found... A couple of things. One is that um, there does seem to be fairly consistent evidence that if you are a moderate snorer, that they may re- they reduce the perception of the amount of snoring that you have. And then, you know, they do all kinds of physiological measurements, and it does seem to increase airflow through the nose in some studies. But in other studies, I found it showed it depends if you're looking at normal people, like healthy people or people who have nasal problems or people who have sleep apnea. So you have to look at the subpopulation. In the healthy population, the the studies show that it does not increase airflow. And they say they concluded that the limitation in airflow is probably farther down. You know, it's in the bony structures and, and and you can't so the, the, you know, the, the nares are not the limiting step, the, the limiting part of the, of the flow of air into your, into your nostrils. And so the strips do nothing, basically. So it seems like if you have some kind of obstruction that causes snoring, that it can help. Some people feel like that they breathe easier with the strips, but there's no evidence that it improves performance. And if you have a normal nas- nasal anatomy, it may not do anything. Uh, in those cases. One of the studies about that I read, or at least the abstract from it, said that the only benefit that there may be is a psychological one. Yeah, in terms of athletic performance, I haven't seen any physiological evidence that shows that it's right. doing anything. Of course, as we've talked about many times before, you know, the, the belief in a benefit may actually, like if you think you're lucky, you actually are more lucky. If you, you psychologically, you know, if athletes think they have an edge, they may push themselves a little harder, a little further, whatever. 
But yeah, there's, that's it. There's no, doesn't seem, appear to be anything physiological. And just to wrap this up, um, the last six races, Jay, you know, we said that it, it, the horse has been wearing the strips and it won all six yeah. races. Well, also, you have to consider that the horse for the last six races has had a different jockey than he had in the races prior to that. Yeah. That may have something to do with it, yeah. Okay, Jay, you're going to tell us there's another item involving the, the word Jupiter. This is one is about Jupiter's great red spot. Yeah, it's one of the most recognizable features of our solar system, the Great Red Spot of Jupiter. They should give it a cool name other than the Great Red Spot. Like, give it some, like, you know. Like the Eye of Sauron. Yeah. Oh, you you beat me to it by two seconds. (laughs) So, this is a persistent. (laughs) Eye of Sauron, lidless, wreathed in flame. All right, no need to out-nerd everyone. (laughs) Wouldn't it be cool every time you looked at it through a a telescope, it like says, do not look at me, you know, whatever. So this is a... It would turn and look at you like the red spot would move and track you, yeah. These subtle ways would just make the world a better place. So the red spot is a... It's it's called a persistent anticyclonic storm. That's 22 degrees south of Jupiter's equator. Simply put, though, it's an enormous hurricane. And it's estimated to be between three and 400 years old. So the spot makes a full rotation around Jupiter in six Earth days or 14 Jovian days. And at its largest observable size, three Earths could fit inside its diameter, diameter roughly. So sadly to me, it's been known for quite some time that the spot is shrinking. And scientists don't know why. It's, it's, what are you shrinking? I, it sucks, right? It could be a normal fluctuation. Yeah. Or we could be seeing the increasingly fast shrinkage and demise until it's just one day it's not going to be there anymore. People have been observing the storm since the 1600s, but scientists did not notice the shrinkage until around the 1930s. The Hubble telescope, however, has been taking images of Jupiter, and the recent observations show that it's 10,250 miles or 16,496 kilometers across, and that's less than half the size it was in the late 1800s, where the measurements were 25,500 miles or 41,038 kilometers. So th- this makes it its relative width the size of only, you know, give or take a little, one Earth now. And that sucks. That sucks. All 1. my life, I, I grew up, think, you know, hearing three Earths can fit inside the diameter of the storm, and it was a really scary and, and amazingly cool fact to think about. You picture the three Earths together inside this giant hurricane. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so, it sucks for us, but imagine the poor people on Jupiter. I mean, if you had a storm yeah. that was raging for that long, you would want it to end. Yeah, but they get to live for a million years, so that's nothing to them. So as we... <laughs> so, have, would, so, so Jay... Jupiterians. Jupiterians. Jay, you're worried about shrinkage? <laughs> Always. That's why I'm going to... If you listen to our interview we do later with the dentist, I have the mouth guard. Um, so as we observe... <laughs> The spot, the spot shrinking, we're seeing the rate of the shrinkage increase. It's losing 580 miles or 933 kilometers a year. Hubble, oh yeah. Hubble officials wrote recently, one possibility is that some unknown activity in the planet's atmosphere may be draining energy and weakening the storm, causing it to shrink. Maybe it's just getting colder and that's what's causing the shrinkage. I've heard that that happens. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I, I read F- Phil Plate's blog. On Slate, and Phil had a bunch of interesting things. He was saying, like, keep in mind, the upper atmosphere of Jupiter is changing all the time with planet-sized storms coming and going, which I, I find that to be fascinating as well. The red spot absorbs smaller storms in its incredible violent shifting battle of deadly wind and chemicals. I, that's my sentence. <laughs> 
What's funny is, you know, looking at the, the current pictures of Jupiter, it's obvious to me that the spot is smaller. It's not the red spot of my childhood. But I, I didn't notice, you know, that it was shrinking. Maybe because I'm always looking at older pictures of Jupiter. I don't know, like yeah. the Voyager pictures from the 1970s or whatever. All right, Rebecca, apparently the U.S. military has a preparation plan for a zombie apocalypse. It's true. I, lo- mm-hmm. I love this. Yeah, we, we've talked about similar stories in the past, like when the CDC has used zombies as a method to talk about preparation for disease outbreaks and things like that. So this is, this is similar. The, uh, magazine Foreign Policy got an exclusive look at a declassified document called CONOP 8888. And uh, that document was created back in 2010, and it did, in fact, detail a strategy for the military in the event of a zombie attack. And the nice thing is that it took into account the several varieties of zombies, uh, including some I had never heard of, like chicken zombies and uh, vegetarian chicken. zombies. Yeah, ch- chicken zombies apparently are chickens that have come back from the dead. And apparently those are real um, because there is apparently a problem with farmers sometimes having to do away with chickens and they gas them, but they don't do a good job. So the chickens aren't really dead. And so the farmers bury them and then they spring out of the ground. So yeah, they, they talk about various different kinds of zombies and uh, how the military might deal with them. And there are people out there who are concerned that the U.S. military is wasting tax dollars on something that will obviously never happen. But the truth is that this is something that has a use. And the way the military puts it, it makes a lot of sense. They have to come up with planning strategies. And there are political ramifications when they make uh, strategies that involve actual enemies, actual potential enemies. Like, for instance, if they were to say, here's a, a strategy in case Canada invades the United States. Here's what we should do. Uh, there are problems. If that gets leaked and Canada sees it, they might be a little insulted, but they probably wouldn't say anything because they're Canada. Uh, yes. they're generally very apologetic. <laughs> uh, so instead they use this, uh, completely ridiculous scenario as a way to talk about the strategies they need without potentially pissing off anyone else. So that's what it is. Uh, But there are people who inevitably are going to spin this as the U.S. having proof that zombies are real or uh, one I saw on a message board briefly. I don't know if this is going to catch on, but that the U.S., is um, in possession of a zombie-like virus that they, you know, like a biological weapon that they could release upon the world. And so they would need to be able to deal with the ramifications of that. Uh, so, yeah, you, you can look forward to this being cited by the Alex Jones crowd for years to come, I'm sure. It is very X-Files. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, guys. Well, Evan, before we go on to Who's That Noisy this week, we do have a lot of uh, some updates to give. So I thought we'd give them at this point in the show, first we'll start by reminding everybody that the amazing meeting is coming up. It's right around the corner. And uh, we have the SGU dinner. We have an SGU live show. We're going to be having an SGU member get together. 
and we have the poker tournament. It's going to be a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to remind everybody that if you haven't registered yet for the amazing meeting, which is in Las Vegas, July 11th to 13th, please remember to use the SGU TAM 2014 code when you register to get a $25 discount. But Jay, that's not the only conference we have this year. We have two conferences this year down under. Well, wait, we're going to Dragon Con. Yeah, that's true. Right, which is an epic time. If you haven't been, it's such an incredible conference. I mean, you can't even really call it a conference because there's just so much going on. It's like a hundred conferences. So uh, if you if you're a geek, if you like sci-fi, if you into movies, if you fantasy, like fantasy, if you like every anything to do with modern culture, you, if you, you like pina coladas. And come come see us and getting say lost hi. in the rain. But we do have a, a uh, You're not going to do the whole song, Steve, are you? We have an epic adventure planned again. We were invited by the Australian skeptics to come down again and do another conference. And when the New Zealand skeptics found out, they also invited us to a conference. So now we have two conferences going on in that part of the world. And uh, I'm going to give you the details about the Australian conference right now. And then next week, we'll give you the details on the New Zealand conference. So the Australian Skeptics National Conference 2014. So the URL to register, convention.skeptics.com.au forward slash registration. Hashtag A-U-S-S-K-E-P-C-O-N-14. The dates are November 28th to 30th in Sydney, Australia, of course, 2014. So apart from the, the normal convention routine, um, we'll have, then you know, that runs from Saturday the 29th to Sunday, November 30th. There's also going to be special pre-convention social gatherings on the evening of Friday, November 28th. There's also going to be special SGU recordings, which which is already sold out. I'm sorry. They put it up and it sold out right away. Um, there's a uh, ton of awesome speakers. To name a few, we have George Robb, Kendrick Frazier, Dick Smith, uh, Dr. Carl, Peter Fitzsimmons, Robin Williams, Rachel Dunlop, did you say Robin, Robin Williams? Williams. Yes. Robin, Robin Williams, Williams awesome. presenter. She's a presenter of ABC Radio Science Show and uh, Occam's Razor. Uh, a uh. ton of other awesome people. <laughs> now we we should say that George Crab is not just going to be at the conference. It's he's coming on the entire tour with us. So it's actually we're we're trying to figure out. We haven't named the tour yet, but it's going to be like the SGU Geo Tour something. Um, but he's going to be with us the entire time on everything that we do. We're also going to be making a side trip to Canberra. The Canberra skeptics are very happy about that, although, well, the details on that are forthcoming. Uh, and then the New Zealand conference is the weekend after the Sydney conference. But again, we will give you full details on that next week. Hey, did you guys know that you could become a member of the SGU? Yes, yes. I do know that. <laughs> did know that. <laughs> so we have multiple <laughs> membership levels so that you could show your support in all sorts of cool and awesome ways. But uh, it basically breaks down to a basic level, which we call the rebel scum level. Uh, you get a discounted access to Nexus, discounted uh, admission. You also can come to the membership event that we'll be having at TAM. And you have the, as we call it, the indescribable joy of supporting the SGU and our, all of our skeptical outreach. But at the damn dirty ape level or higher, the premium level, you also get access to all of our premium content. Uh, we already have 
26 pieces of premium content that if you become a member, you get instant access to all of that back catalog of premium content. The last five of which are interviews with each of us, with all the rogues. These are extended 40 to 60 minute interviews. I interview everybody, then at the end, Jay interviews me uh, one-on-one. They were a lot of fun. You get an in-depth sort of behind-the-scenes look at each of the rogues, but also lots of other kinds of content we put up there, uncut interviews, extended interviews, uh, extra segments of the show, etc. We try to put up something as you know, premium content as often as we can, and I have a backlog of stuff that I just have to do post-production on to get up there. So that's for all of our premium members. And don't let the name Damn Dirty Apes scare you away. That's from the Planet of the Apes movie, which I hope most of you know from the 1970s. Yeah, yeah. All the membership levels are sci-fi movie references. All right. Well, Evan, get us up to date on Who's That Noisy? Thank you, Steve. I will do just that by playing for you last week's Who's That Noisy? Here we go. Oh, yeah. That sounds like a Tasmanian <laughs> devil. Yes. <laughs> that was the most popular guess by far. By oh. far, that was the most popular guess. It also happened to be the wrong guess. That was, in fact, uh, an alpaca. <laughs> a male a male alpaca. Uh, let's see. Uh, in the act of procreation with a female alpaca. And that Doing is, it. That is the distinct, distinct noise that they make. And how do I know that it's distinct? Well, because you fucked an alpaca. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Very nice, Steve. See, that's the funniest thing you've ever said. <laughs> so, a few people, and I knew we would have them. That's the alpaca farmers out there would <laughs> would <laughs> would chime in and say, "I know exactly what that is." And yes, in fact. Uh, they, they were able to do that. And this week's winner is Mackenzie, Mackenzie Ditter, D-I-T-T-E-R. Congratulations, Mackenzie. Mackenzie wrote to us that it's a male alpaca getting horny and mounting his lady friend. Super disgusting slash uncomfortable to watch and hear. So there, there you have it from the, uh, from the experts. And we always have experts in the audience, which is a I great thing email. about this show. <laughs> <It's awesome. laughs> it is. <laughs> it's perfect. So, well done, Mackenzie. Congratulations. Your name goes into the hopper for the drawing at the end of the year. We will select one. There will be only one winner of the Who's That Noisy contest, and they're going to join us in early 2015 for an episode of Science or Fiction. They will get to play with the rogues. So, well done. And what do you got for this week? A voice you may and hopefully do recognize. One of the first phrases I ever calculated in my life was the one of insulin, and that Patterson was very pleased to see it. Interesting. Go ahead and send us your answer, your best guess, WTN at theskepticsguide.org. And uh, you can also leave us your answer uh, in our forums. Uh, we have a special board for Who's That Noisy Guesses, and the website for the forums is sguforums.com. So go ahead and feel free to post your answer there as well. I look at it all, and I'll draw a winner next week. I hope it's you. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, Evan. We're going to do one email this week. This comes from Mike from Dublin, Ireland. And Mike writes, drinkable UV protection. I just saw this in an article in the Daily Mail and thought it would be perfect for the show. 
When I first saw the headline about drinkable UV protection, I thought it might be real. Imagine my disappointment. It seems amazing that they ha- even got away with the ad. I look forward to hearing your comments. This is, you know, pure nonsense. So, you know, again, when you, you first see like drinkable sunscreen, it's not crazy. Just the very concept of consuming a drug that or something that incorporates into your skin and gives you UV protection is not impossible. I mean, that's what, you know, melanin is, you know, proteins that incorporate into your skin and darken your skin and give you UV protection. This one turns out to be magic water. This is harmonized water where they imprint vibrations of specific frequencies onto the water, frequencies that are, that they have been discovered to whatever, have whatever magical properties you want. Yeah, they also can stack thousands of frequencies onto a single molecule of water. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Yeah, that's uh, that's homeopathy I would call it unbelievable. Steroids yeah. or and something. They're discovering new frequencies all the time. They have all kinds of different harmonized water, not just so that you can, you know, tan yourself. They have it they say it's recommended for, recommended for. Now they have their quack what we call the quack Miranda warning. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA, but they're not saying we don't, we're not saying it treats anything, but it's recommended for arthritis, irritable bowel syndrome, eczema, asthma, depression, and and a whole list of indications. And asthma, that's good. I, let's see somebody who needs to go to the emergency yeah, room for an asthma attack. That won't attack. have any ill effects. Yeah, that yeah that that could kill somebody. People die of asthma because they delay getting proper medical attention. So any treatment for asthma that doesn't actually work is deadly. All right. Well, thanks, Mike. Well, guys, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week. We haven't talked about this one in a while, Personal Capital. This is a free and secure tool that solves two barriers to growing your wealth. Yeah, the first barrier is that it's hard to keep track of. You know, you've got your stocks, your 401k, bank accounts, offshore oil funds, (laughs) and all of those have different sites and different usernames and passwords. Secondly, you pay someone else to manage it. And guess what? You're probably paying too much. So Personal Capital brings all of your accounts and assets on one single screen on your computer, phone, or tablet with real-time and intuitive graphs. Guys, this is no joke. We all need to be preparing for our retirements. You know, if you have kids, you have college tuitions that you got to save for, it's a hard thing to do, and you need someone to help you manage it. And, you know, a lot of times people are overpaying too much for fees and things about it. This software really does just help you manage all of your different assets and, and helps you build your portfolio. So to set up your free account, go to Personal Capital dot com forward slash sgu personal capital is free uh, and it's also the smart way to grow your money so just go to personalcapital.com forward slash sgu all right guys let's get back to our show joining us now are jason luchtefeld and grant ritchie jason and grant welcome to the skeptics guide it's a pleasure to be on the skeptics guide to the galaxy (laughs) (laughs) oh wait you messed that you messed that up oh it's it's super cluster that's right (laughs) no it's quite a pleasure and we appreciate you having us on Oh, we're glad you could make, you both could make it. Now, you guys have your own podcast called the Prism Podcast, right? Which I was on recently. And you, you guys are both dentists. That's right. We are. Uh, I was at the EBD conference that, that you guys know were part of having me be part of that conference. And, uh, I did a science fiction based upon some of the things that I learned while I was there. 
And that caused a little bit of controversy and a lot of emails. Outrage. I'm still pissed off. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we need to talk about this flossing thing. I didn't floss for three days after our last show, and it left me demoralized. So we need to (laughs) talk about this. Do you feel any differently? Do you feel any more diseased? Yeah, I feel (laughs) disgusting. And so I went back to doing it, but I don't know. I don't know how to, I don't know how to be anymore. I mean, guys, seriously, but isn't there still food in between your teeth? Even, you know, like, isn't it get, doesn't it get more of the food particles out than just brushing? Yes. I, I would say that it does. The, the problem is, as Steve kind of alluded to, that the research just doesn't support the overall dramatic health benefits that we have been told over the years. So is it, is it good? Probably. Is it going to make your breath a little fresher? Probably. But. It's, it, but isn't that enough for you, Jason? I mean, seriously. Absolutely. Look, I, I want my wife to floss, and I encourage it in her. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. yeah, that too. <laughs> and I think if you look at the systematic study, you can take away two different things. One of them is that flossing doesn't help much with preventing cavities or periodontal disease. But on the other hand, they did say that the studies really overall weren't that well done. That's kind of what's troubling to us is that a lot of what Uh, we take for granted uh, really isn't backed by some rigorous science, even some of the most basic fundamental things that we would take for granted. So it's more fair to say that we just don't know. There isn't evidence to prove that it's helpful, but it's not as if the evidence definitively shows that it's not helpful. Absolutely. I would never recommend to my patients not to floss because just from a purely connecting the dots standpoint, flossing does remove the plaque, the biofilm that adheres to the teeth and has been shown to cause gingivitis, periodontal diseases, and uh, tooth decay, and flossing removes it. So it's plausible that it, it certainly can't do any harm and and does have benefits. And like Jay was saying, getting the food particles out from a cosmetic standpoint, and it has been shown to prevent gingivitis, so it reduces your gums bleeding and things like that. Uh, but we could also take a look at this from a public health standpoint, and that is, what is going to be the impact on the public dental health from uh, advocating and teaching people how to floss versus getting them to brush their teeth for, say, four minutes a day. Because, you know, what's the compliance with the flossing? What's the, uh, how well are people doing it? And is it really worth the effort as a public health intervention? Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I look at it as maybe a little more detailed in that I think we need to look at the individual risk factors that a person comes up with. And this is something that's just starting to gain some momentum in dentistry. And that is that we, we know that bugs contribute to the disease process. We know that oral hygiene contributes, and there's some genetic factors, the saliva, uh, consistency, and flow. And so when you have somebody that is at greater risk, they need to do more things to take care of their mouths. When you somebody is at very low risk, then they can do less things and still have a very healthy mouth. I guess to answer your question, as a general recommendation, yes, brush more and floss. But then when it comes mm-hmm. down to the individual, it's maybe you don't need to do quite everything for quite as long, or maybe you need to do those things and then even more because you got the genetic uh, snake eyes. Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that patients have X amount of time in any given day to deal with oral hygiene, and therefore we should be concentrating more on getting them to 
brush for those extra minutes as opposed to spending that time doing any flossing. I think that's a fair statement, Evan. And I, another thing is you can also flip it on its head is you're right. The compliance for flossing, I, I don't know numbers, but you know, most of our patients that we see every day admit that the last time they flossed was when we flossed them six months ago. But the, the ones who are really diligent flossers, they're overall fairly health conscious. They do other things, both diet, other toothbrushing habits, they do what they're supposed to do. So they're, in general, they're pretty healthy. And listening to last week, I would, I would put Jay in that category, most likely. You've got great teeth, don't you, Jay? I have all my teeth, and they, they all love to sing. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, they're in my mouth. They're part of it. Yeah. I didn't see that coming. I wanted to ask you guys, though, with those people, are you seeing what you would consider, I'm sorry, let me clarify, of the flossers, of your clientele, of your patients, the people who floss, like you're saying overall that you're just seeing healthier people with healthier lifestyles, but is that going to have a dramatic effect on the health of their gums and everything? Yes, definitely, definitely. So if let's just say you're in a, a, or a patient is in my office and we find some decay between the teeth. Well, historically, I would have thought to myself, well, they aren't flossing enough. And obviously, the systematic review shows that that may not be the case. So is the case that the case started because they didn't floss or the fact that they're not a non-flosser also tells me that they're not doing overall healthy choices for the mouth in general, not just specifically with flossing. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Let's talk a little bit about mouthwash. So that's something I do every day is use like a good antibacterial mouthwash. Is that something that's generally good for oral health? Is it optional? Where does it fall in? Okay, it, it depends. If you are rinsing with a mouth rinse that does not have fluoride and you rinse immediately after you brush, that would be bad because you're rinsing away the fluoride from the toothpaste that is the key ingredient that makes toothpaste effective for preventing cavities and all the stuff it does. If you want to use a mouth rinse after you brush, you need to use one uh, that has fluoride in it and there's uh a common brand oh, wow. out there that we recommend for kids and stuff is ACT. You've all probably heard of that, ACT mouth rinse. Yeah. So the important thing there, though, is I researched this a couple months ago, and you can't buy the big bottle because it's regulated based on the total quantity in the bottle itself. And so the big bottle, they have to dilute it too much. So it actually dilutes <laughs> in your mouth the amount of fluoride you get um, if you rinse right after you brush. You want to get the smaller bottle. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is weird. You don't yeah. want yeah. Junior chucking a whole 32-ounce bottle of flu- of mouthwash. <laughs> right. I guess so. Fix that with parenting so I can still get my deals. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's strangely makes me angry. Like, really? They have to change that? Okay. So I'm seeing here on Amazon. I'm on Amazon Prime right now. They have a 17-fluid-ounce bottle. Is that too big or nope. how far down do I want to go? Nope. That's good. That's good. It's the 32-ounce okay. bottle that has the uh, the problems. That's diluted. But all right, so if you use just a regular mouthwash, because honestly, I just do it for my breath. Right. You know, I, especially after, like, if I have a cold, like, after I have, I get over a cold, I always have bad breath because I, I, it just must change my oral flora. And so then I, I really need to use the mouthwash. So I should just do it before I brush rather than after I brush. Is that, does that solve the problem? It does. Like Jason said, unless uh, unless it rinses the fluoride away. Another consideration is whether or not your mouthwash contains alcohol. 
because alcohol, of course, is antibacterial. But on the other hand, it can lead to drying of the mouth. It can desiccate your mouth. And for most healthy individuals, that's not a huge factor, but especially in the elderly population, if they have some health issues, if they're on any number of medications that can cause dry mouth, then that will dry their mouth out further, which really puts them at greater risk of tooth decay. So it's actually can do some harm in those situations. So you don't want a dry mouth. You don't want to rinse away the fluoride. Right. Is the bottom line. Yeah. Got it. Does that mean that if you rinse with water, you're getting rid of the fluoride then? So you have to rinse with a, with a small bottle of Act. Yeah. Or, or you don't, you don't rinse. You brush your teeth. What? You brush your teeth and then you just spit really good. I'm not, you don't I'm rinse. not an animal. I gotta rinse. Yeah. That's. No, but. This is but insane. also, don't you don't you <laughs> also need to ingest fluoride as well? Isn't that helpful? No. Jay, are you eating your toothpaste? <laughs> no, oh God. Steve, Steve you, I blame you, you for this. You stepped over the Steve, line, Steve. You said to me at one point that you could that you need to to ingest fluoride as well because there's a. It, it, didn't you say that, Steve? Were you messing with Jay? <laughs> oh, he said that about hemlock. <laughs> 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 All right, so don't eat toothpaste. Uh, <laughs> I could have told you that. All right, so if I brush my teeth and then rinse with Act, I'm good to go. Small bottle. That's right. Uh, that that will happen. Is All Act right. pain, you guys? I just want to be clear. No, there's generic know. versions. Your big fluoride, your big... Uh... We are totally in the pocket <laughs> of big fluoride. Absolutely. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> but since you bring up ingesting fluoride, and before we get off that point, though, but there's definitely good evidence for public water fluoridation. Help you know improving dental health overall. It's unequivocal. Yeah. Yeah. It's the best value for basically any healthcare prevention system out there, uh, as far as I can tell. It's been lauded as one of the ten greatest health victories in the 20th century is, is community fluoridation. And the other thing about it that, from a sociological standpoint, is it benefits everyone equally. So those without access to care, those maybe in lower social socioeconomic categories, they still benefit from it, even if they may not seek regular dental care. So it is definitely a win for science and for medicine. The, the benefit there is during development, though. So it's yeah. it's in kids. Uh, once you're an adult, there is no longer any benefit other than the minor amount that might pass across your teeth as you're drinking or if you use it to cook and it gets in the food. And it, But that's a minor contribution. Exactly. Systemically health benefits Children with developing teeth, yeah. not adults. Okay, guys, I, I want to ask you about tongue scraping versus just brushing with a toothbrush. Is there any difference? But it makes sense. Yeah, the tongue, if you look at it under a microscope, it's a, it's a pretty nasty, fuzzy, um, velvety thing. And there's a lot of bacteria that, bacteria that get down in the crevices and the sulci. And, and it makes sense. <laughs> I think it's more of a, of a hygiene cosmetic issue for breath as opposed to a, a health issue. But yeah, it's a good idea. Okay. I brush my tongue. I don't scrape my tongue. I brush it. Yeah, either one is fine, brush or scrape, as long as you're cleaning it. A lot of these questions we're asking, uh, getting to the deeper issue, which is what the conference was about, was how much of this is really rigorously science-based and how much of it is just received wisdom because this is the way it gets taught in dental school. Yeah, we, we have great data on fluoride. We have... A great data on a couple other areas like oral cancer and some antibiotic type stuff. But when it comes to more in the weeds or more of the everyday dentist stuff, fillings and uh, filling choices and all that, 
we start to get muddied with how much evidence we really have. I shouldn't say that, how much quality evidence we really have. So in dentistry, we see a lot of that needs more research tagline at the end. So I agree with you. And one of the things that Jason and I found out when we went to the evidence-based dentistry conference last year is how little of what we do every day has a lot of rigorous quality science behind it. Now, that doesn't mean they're, they're wrong, but it is, like Steve said, a, a kind of a mentor where it's passed down by teachers in dental school, by conferences, um, those type of things. And you kind of trial and error. I use this filling material and I like it and I use this filling material and I don't like it as much. And so that by not having that rigorous science, it does increase the likelihood of, of inappropriate or ineffective treatments. It can introduce a lot of bias. Uh, by practicing dentists. Steve, you mentioned in the show last week that since we're kind of isolated private practice, a lot of us tend to do things our own way because, quote, it works in my hands or the in my experience fallacy, which is kind of dangerous. And uh, so we see a lot of that in dentistry. And it, that slows advances in dental fields because you're, we're fighting things on many, many fronts. But that also kind of provides a, a crack in the door for Wu to get in because if nothing is is completely determined, then, you know, Wu can sneak in. So is there a lack of just a culture of scientific research in dentistry or you don't have the funding or you don't have the academic infrastructure? Where's the deficit? I think that we do have some good research being done. The issue is that it's all on patients. And so when we get into the quality of the research is where we where we have the issue because it's on patients, certain factors aren't controlled for, and so the outcome of the study might not be as robust or powerful as we'd like. Now, that being said, I we think we are all trained scientifically. We, you know, in, in my dental school at the University of Oklahoma, my first two years of basic science, we took the exact same courses with the medical students. So we had that medical school background and... We had symposia in how to to evaluate scientific papers, and we had to do presentations and literature research and things like that. But then when you get out into private practice, uh, it becomes more clinically oriented and not academic. And it's easy for a researcher, say, at a university to measure the bond strength of, a, say, a, a filling material to a, an extracted tooth or flex a metal that is used in a certain implant or something, you know, because that's pretty cut and dry. It's just engineering research. But like Jason said, once you get into the human body in different private practices, it's kind of hard to control for those different variables. It's also impossible to do blinding. Yeah, right, right. How do you blind flossing? Yeah. All right, guys. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure. Thanks, guys and girl. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right, guys, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Citrix GoToMeeting. You know what's funny? I actually played a full session of virtual Dungeons and Dragons on GoToMeeting this weekend, and it worked out really well. I was able no to way. Sh- share my screen with everybody. Awesome. Everyone was able to see each other. We had the video going with the HD faces. Steve, you ran the game? I, I was the I was the GM. Yeah, I ran the game. 
And it worked really well. GoToMeeting is great for reconnecting with old friends, or you can use it in your business to talk to coworkers, collaborate. You can talk to clients on a regular basis, brainstorm. It's so much easier to do that using GoToMeeting than to actually get everybody in one room. Yeah, at work, we've got people spread all over the planet. It's impossible. Uh, so a lot of the meetings that I go to are or just at my desk. So that that's why we use Citrix GoToMeeting, the powerfully simple way to meet in person online from anywhere, anytime. Yeah, and it's really, really easy. Sign up for GoToMeeting from your computer or mobile device and launch your first meeting in seconds. You'll be able to share the same screen to collaborate on projects all in real time and turn your webcam on to see each other face to face. Start your free 30-day trial of GoToMeeting today. Visit GoToMeeting.com, click the Try It Free button, and use the promo code SGU. That's GoToMeeting.com, promo code SGU. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious, and I challenge my panel of skeptics, skeptics to tell me which one is the fakeroonie. You guys ready for this week? Yeah. Of course. Absolutely. All righty. Okay, here we go. Item number one, a Chinese miner, meaning somebody who mines, not a little person, who was trapped <laughs> underground for 17 years, was recently rescued by excavators. All right, number two, a recent study of buried remains concludes that survivors of the 14th century Black Death had a significantly increased life expectancy following the plague. And item number three, Sony has announced the return of tape backup with a cassette that can hold 185 terabytes of data, or data, depending on which way you swing. Rebecca, go first. Oi, this is interesting. <laughs> I find all of these to be rather plausible, actually. What? Yeah. The first one? Yeah. Underground for 17 years. I feel like you could make it. There's lots of things you could lick. Uh, <laughs> it's, oh there's water. I mean, water is the main thing you need. Uh, and there's that in abundance. Yep. Um, a little, little radon mixed in probably, but that's all right. Well, with plenty of, uh, eyeless fish for protein. <laughs> um, three eye eyeless fish. I could see it happening. Fungi. What, what do you, you think? Know? You smeagle for crying out loud? <laughs> yeah, I, I assumed that that's what you look like. <laughs> Precious. Precious. Uh, yeah, I could see that happening. 17 years. That's a long time. Um, but yeah, I can see it. I can see it happening. Um, Survivors of the Black Death having increased life expectancy. I also find significantly increased. Yeah, I can. Well, I mean, yeah, you're talking significantly, probably in the scientific sense. And yeah, okay. why not? Because all of these people die. That leaves tons of resources for the survivors, but it also means a lack of people to distribute those resources and take care of babies and things like that so i can see how that one uh might not be true um and then tape backup um a cassette that can hold 185 terabytes i find that plausible too because i have read in the distant past that you know i i read an argument that we gave up on tapes too soon and that tapes actually are capable of holding a vast amount of 
data. Um, they have other problems, but yeah, they, they can actually be quite good for that. And I love the idea of that because I, you know, cassette tapes were what I grew up on. Yeah, I'd like to get that tape back and be able to use it. So I'm hoping that that's true. So, uh, of all of these, I don't know. This, this is kind of a three-way coin flip. I'm going to, I think I'm going to go with the Black Death one just because, um, yeah, I do think they'd have more resources, but there would maybe be fewer people to, um, to take care of others. I think a lot of children would have died because of that. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll go with that one as being the fiction. Okay, Evan. Um, okay, the Chinese miner. Uh, 17 years. Here's my question about this. Did they know he was trapped for 17 years or he was only recently discovered? <laughs> what do you mean after like? <laughs> like well, they, uh, they just couldn't get to him. They didn't have the technology or something. I don't know. The second one about buried remains and the survivors of the 14th century Black Death. They had an increased life expectancy following the plague. Well, why would that be? Maybe they, I don't know, built up an immunity, like they had a supercharged immune system, and they were able to fight off some other bad stuff going on besides the plague, and therefore that resulted in increased life expectancy. But I, I don't know. That's kind of just a guess. And then Sony, the return of tape backup, didn't know it was 100% gone. It, I don't think it was. They still make plenty of different kinds of tape i know holding 185 terabytes of data well okay i think this is probably the most plausible of the three uh look uh this i'm sure that they've developed new technologies to write more information in a smaller amount of physical space and that plus they probably have ways to uh, increase the largest size of the spools and reels of the tape itself so the two things combined equal 100 85 terabytes of data. That's my guess there. So is it the Chinese miner or is it the plague? Uh, I'll go with Rebecca GWR and say that's the plague fiction. Okay, Jay. All right. So taking these in order, the Chinese miner, this guy was trapped for 17 years. Steve says specifically trapped underground. Well, I, I don't think I could survive in my house for 17 years <laughs> with, with six months of preparation and $100,000 at my disposal. How could he possibly survive underground for 17 years? Food, water, God forbid the guy needs medication. He does not brushing his teeth. Oh, Seven, flossing. Ugh. 17 Gross. years. I mean, I mean, how big of a cavern was this? Scavenging. For food, and you think about it, 17 years underground, he doesn't have a light source, he can't possibly have a light source, so he's operating in the dark for 17 years. I just don't even need to go to the other two, that one has got to be the fiction. But I will talk about the other two, I, I did think of something for number two, the one here about um, the survivors of the Black Death. It's possible that when they say there was an increased life expectancy, it's possible that they're saying that the people that survived were the healthier, healthier people in the community and the average life expectancy therefore increased because all the weaker people died. I think that one is just a statistical anomaly. And then the uh, last one about Sony and the tape backup, I absolutely believe that. I think that that is beyond plausible. I was waiting for someone to, to come out with something like that. So there you have it. And Bob. Yeah, Jay, um, I was going to go with my gut on this one because 17 years just it seems... 
effing ridiculous. That's a joke. Unless Steve throws something wacky at us that we just have not anticipated, give me a break. Seriously, 17 years, sorry. Yeah, and I didn't I didn't even think of being in the dark. Jay thought of that one. I was like, oh, yeah, there's another awesome reason why this is baloney. I mean, <laughs> come on. I mean, we're, seriously, how much food... <laughs> okay, how much food do you need in 17 years? Where are you gonna, where are you gonna get it? Where are you gonna get the food? And then how long would it take you to completely eat all of that food if you happen to find something? I don't know, plants, whatever. I don't, yeah, I just can't buy it. Yeah, let's say he has a big find of food. There's no refrigeration. Let's say he takes down another big right. animal just, that happens to be just, in the cave with him. Where's he, how's he cut it up? Where is he storing it? Like it's it's, it's a, ridiculous. It's it's, it's ridiculous. And my, you know, my first reaction was it's 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 too ridiculous to be false. And I'm like, no, I'm just gonna go with it because that's bull, total bullshit. <laughs> Bob, um, you sound like you're so, insulted by it more. Than that's you. just like I'm, no, I'm I'm getting ready to be pissed because I it's probably yeah. gonna be you do true. Sound right? angry. I'm just <laughs> yeah, Bob. I'm just I'm just getting ramped up here. So the second yeah. one though, survivors. Now I'm surprised Poke. nobody asked this. When you Poke say Bob. survivors of the Black Death, do you mean people that had the disease and survived, or they just happened to? There's no need to swear. I know. You'll have to get vulgar. So angry. Come I on, Bob. I didn't need to swear. I just bleed over. So, what, are we talking survivors who contracted the disease, or just people who who just were lucky not to get it? Uh, it's not okay. determined. It's just people it's... who were alive right. after the Black Death, whether okay. or not they they survived the disease itself. All right. I'm not. I'm, I don't know. I'm not buying Jay's explanation about they were just hardier, um, because I think I think almost anybody would have caught that. I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, but I think I don't care how hardy you were. If you just were, if you were exposed, you were you had a good chance of getting it. So I'm not buying that one. Uh, and the Sony one with the tape backup, sure. That that's quite a nice. Uh, that's a nice breakthrough. They advancement that they had there. Uh, but sure, I think there's still a place for tape backup. I mean, it's gargantuan. Sure, it's slow and it's sequential. But when you're restoring from backup, you, I don't care about the weight as long as the data is there. And there's lots of better alternatives now that are much better than tape. But still. Um, I'm totally buying that one. So yeah, I'm gonna go with the I'm gonna go with the the guy underground for 17 years. This has got to be false. All right, we got an it even better, split. It, it better be and, false, and it, it's I, not. For, split. for how angry Bob, Bob is, I really hope that somewhere damn. there was a Chinese man licking fungus for 17 years underground just to make Bob angry. There's slime enough for everyone. Oh my God. All right, but you all agree with number three, so I'll start there. You all agree that Sony has announced the return of tape backup with a cassette that can hold 185 terabytes of data, what if I told you that it wasn't Sony, it was Dell? Uh, no. It was Sony. Uh, that one is true. Oh. It's only 180 terabytes. Now, that one is true. <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's this is a pretty easy one, but I thought it was cool. It's not just like they just made a bigger, better tape. They actually figured out how to cram more data onto a smaller piece of magnetic tape. They yeah. This, like, this super magnetic tape that can hold it. A ton of data, 148 gigabytes per square inch. It's the new record holder for storage density for for the tape medium. Spooled into a cartridge, and each uh, cartridge can hold 185 terabytes. I think that would probably hold me for a while. Um, So, yeah, I mean, tape backup, it's never really went away. It's always been there. It just really hasn't been marketed to consumers, you know. Although... You know, this still probably has the niche that, like, if you're a big company and you need to cheaply back up a whole ton of data, but it doesn't have to be fast. Because it's obviously, this is not, you know, a method for, like, quick access. This is cold storage. You need cheap, massive cold storage. That's what a tape backup is for. Yeah, the NSA needs to keep all our calls somehow, (laughs) right? 
Yeah, right. And the yeah, key, a, the key, I think Steven said, it's cheap as dirt. It's just so for, cheap compared for to, the, compared yeah, to per terabyte. anything else. Per terabyte, it's it's, yeah. uh, it's pennies. I mean, I think the initial investment is not negligible, but then if you're talking about like the storage medium itself, it's yeah, per terabyte, it's going to be the cheapest. So very interesting. All right, I guess we'll go back to number one. Damn it. Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh. Doesn't mean anything. Wait, yeah, that doesn't, doesn't mean, mean anything. anything. <laughs> doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I, I, I learned that a Chinese miner who was trapped underground for 17 years was recently rescued by excavators. Evan and Rebecca think this one is science. Bob and Jay think this one is the fiction. That's right. Now, <laughs> here's the story. I'm going to give you the story. Oh, oh it's going to drive The story is that dying. this <sighs> gentleman was part was – he was a miner, and there was an earthquake, and it collapsed. 78 of his co-workers were also trapped with him and died. He was oh, a lone survivor. Ate. No, so he buried them. <laughs> he took the time to bury them. They, there was still they were already there was buried. Just poor planning. There was still a connection to the surface through little sh- air shafts, so he had air, and there actually was a large storage of emergency rice and water just in case something like this happened. So he had a huge food store down there, and he was yeah. only one person, so it lasted a long time, and he was able to to eat like moss. Wait, 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 wait. So that's. The light came from the phosphorescent moss, which yes. he also ate. Awesome. <laughs> he probably glowed after three years or something. <laughs> no, I want to hear you say it. You the only it. problem is that the entire story is a hoax. <laughs> yes. The entire story is a hoax. Give me one, Jay. <laughs> right in the face. Rebecca, so did you lucky. see the You're hoax so story? Lucky, Steve. I saw a headline yeah. and I never bothered to click through. So dumb, this was re- this was reported on the World News Daily Report. Oh Lord! Which is, <laughs> gosh, it's a fake. It's a fake news site. It's like the Rebecca, Onion. You just, saw it and you still thought it was science. I didn't see what website it was on. I just saw the headline oh. in my feed. That's because know. it's been it's been viral on Facebook. Yeah. That's why I used. Oh, it. Oh, I see. I see. It's, I didn't it's a see fake. It. It's a fake news story published on a fake news site. You know, a, a joke news site, and then it got passed around as real on Facebook and went viral. And and so that's. That's why. So, I used so in it, a way, it's real. No, no, but but yeah, but it, the story itself in our hearts, like is, Santa. <laughs> but Steve, it's funny you loved that they, it. You loved it, Steve, because it went viral and, 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 and everybody believed it. Yeah, but hey, Bob, I, I didn't know. The thing is, the hoax, the fact that it's a hoax, is also out there as well. It all hinged on whether or not you heard it was a hoax or not. Yeah. Right. Oh yeah. So of this, course. Could, this could have been a really easy science or fiction if you guys had that's, heard that it was. I a had. Hoax. I had not heard. Well, that's this what I. That's what I meant. That's precisely what I meant. Yeah. Yeah. But it it, they did. So they obvious. did. I know, but <laughs> right, the thing that's right, interesting is that the, what the fake saying, story, the fake story, story did cover all the angles. Yeah, you know, it, they had. There was water. There was food. There was air, and there was phosphorescent moss. Yeah. So it's sense. interesting. And, and okay, but here's the the the, the sad truth is that the uh, Chinese uh, mines are really unsafe. Well, and yeah. how, how many miners do you think die a year? In China, oh, hundred thousand, several thousand per year. Yeah, and it's a, it's wow. the highest of any country. Uh, yeah, I think like six per day. You know, something like that. But in recent years, in the last few years, China has been cracking down because a lot of these are like independent mining companies outside of official regulation. You know, and just aren't. There's no OSHA at operation here. You know what I mean? So they're just horribly unsafe working conditions, and they do claim that they have been able to bring down their um, their death rate, 
you know, by 24% from 2012 to 2013. So yeah, so in 2013, only 1,049 people died from cave-ins and other accidents in mines. Yay. That lends some plausibility to the fact that, you know, these kind of accidents are happening in China all the time. But yeah, the 17 years just seems, I had the same reaction. I'm like, come on, 17 years, there's just no way. All right, which means that a recent study of buried remains concludes that survivors of the 14th century Black Death had a significantly increased life expectancy following the plague is very interesting science. Um, and actually, Rebecca and Jay, you are both correct. In Yay. That, <laughs> in terms of the reason, the researcher, what they so they looked at the skeletal remains of people from before and after the plague, the Black Death in Europe. And the people from after lived, uh, were living longer. Their life expectancy was like at every age, you know, their life expectancy seemed to be about 20 years longer, like, you know, significantly increased. Though the, the study doesn't say why that is, but the researchers came, have two hypotheses as to why that might be. And they're the two that you guys mentioned. One is that while the healthier people tended to survive, and therefore, we're just looking at a, a healthy survivor effect. And that's why they went on to live longer. But also, Rebecca, that there were more resources available. And the evidence does suggest that after the plague, people were much better fed. They were eating more meat, fish, better quality bread, and in higher quantities because there was just a lot more food around. Good job, Rebecca. Thank you. Thanks. I'll take it. <laughs> Actually, it's okay. I a little consolation prize. It's the yeah. process, not the not the answer, right? Yeah, yeah. it's the journey, oh, not, the AI, not the uh, AI, <laughs> not the rest area. Not, except on weeks when Bob wins. And it's all about the <laughs> Oh, about I so the wanted Bob to be wrong this week because I wanted to hear him fly off the handle. Yeah, that would have been great. What next week, Bob. Save was, it for next I, week. I, I had vented enough. It would have been anticlimactically. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Jay, close us out with a quote. This was a quote sent to me uh, by Grant Ritchie, who we just interviewed in this episode. He, he suggested a quote, and I really like it. So the quote is, people who devote their lives to studying something often come to believe that the object of their fascination is the key to understanding everything. This is a quote by Jonathan Haidt. Yeah, I like that quote. All right. Well, thank you guys all for joining me. Steve, this you're thank you, Steve. You're welcome. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And now that the show's over, don't forget to sign up for your free account with Personal Capital right now. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To sign up for free, go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the Personal Capital banner or go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Personal Capital, less fees, more Gs.